Let's turn our attention to God's Word on this Christmas morning, turning to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Familiar words, but worth reminding ourselves of the circumstances around the birth of our Savior. Luke chapter 2. This is not going to be the text we're going to be spending our time in, but it is the context for everything that we'll need to address this morning. Luke chapter 2. And follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Luke writes, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn." In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people." For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told, by, told them by the shepherds. But Mary, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This is the Christmas story. This is the what of what happened at that first Christmas. But that's not the focus of the theology behind this narrative. It's a wonderful narrative. 
There's much to be gleaned and learned of. He's Christ the Lord. He is God in flesh. But I want to turn our attention very briefly to the why of this story. And it might surprise you to know that it's in a place you probably have read over but may not be very familiar with. Now I'll turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We find a little statement about the incarnation, about the coming of God in flesh, about Christmas itself in a very unexpected narrative of what the Macedonians or the Corinthians had done and were called to do in giving a gift for the Jerusalem saints. A little background. As you know, the, the, the heat was being turned up in and around Jerusalem for Christians. They were being disenfranchised and disassociated from friends and from family. They were losing jobs. They were losing streams of income. They were losing fellowship. They were losing all that was important to them because of their conversion to Christianity. And literally, because of their inability to make money, they, they were starving. Well, Paul sets up a, an offering campaign to the Macedonians, the, the Corinthians, and he asks them to give to this much-needed welfare situation among the Christians in Jerusalem. And the book of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is about this gift that he was collecting, this offering he was collecting from the Macedonians, from the Corinthians, to take to the, the Jews who had converted to Christianity in Jerusalem. In the middle of this admonition to give to the people who had need, there's a little statement that, that comes a little bit out of nowhere, but it informs so much of what we're celebrating here today, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He gives the motivation for their giving of their own financial resources for the needs of others. And he says this, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Christmas includes so many features, being with family, being with friends, but none of those features get our attention probably more than gift giving and gift receiving. Is that fair to say? It's reported that nearly 217 million Americans, 84% of us, planned to buy gifts for friends and loved ones this holiday season. And in the 2022 season, shoppers planned to spend $823 each on Christmas. Now, I know some people do more, some people do less, but that's an average. For a total of more than $178 billion in gift spending this year. This study also found that gift giving comes with big debt involved for many people. Many Americans are still paying off. 31% of Americans who went into debt over gift giving last Christmas in 2021 are still in debt in 2022, paying off those balances. Now, we can study the sins and the lack of wisdom surrounding unsecured debt. Maybe we'll do that in the future. But for a moment, I want us to consider the noble and the honorable notion of gift giving. Gift giving is a great thing. 
And if you really, I think the older you get, you get more joy out of giving a gift than receiving. Is that fair to say? Most of the parents are nodding north, north and south, and most of the kids are saying, no way, give me the gifts. Most people attach the idea of gift giving to Christmas to what? The Magi. Where did this the idea of, of gift giving associated with the celebration of the birth of Christ actually come from? It might surprise you that when you trace history back, it's not to the gifts of the Magi that this is, this is traced. It's a tradition that's traced back actually to pagan times. The custom began with the ancient Roman celebration of Saturnalia, which is the customary in which it was customary to give gifts during the celebration of that festival to the god Saturn, the agricultural god, around AD 36 is when this took off. It took place typically on New Year's Day. A sacrifice was made, a banquet would be held where the people of all social standards would then celebrate together. Slaves would be on the same level for that festival as their masters. And the holiday of Saturnalia was celebrated throughout most of the Roman Empire between the last week of the year and the first week of the new year. It's a popular festival. Everyone loved it. And the idea of giving gifts and receiving gifts was prevalent. As the Roman Empire then became Christianized under Constantine, the holiday was just adopted into the Christian calendar. We've studied this many times. Jesus was likely born in early April, late March, in the spring. But they adopted this date because there was already a, a reason to celebrate and just said, let's make that the celebration of the Lord. There's nothing inherently wrong about that. In fact, the word Christ, Christ, mass, mass of people, a mass, a gathering, Christmas is just the, a service, a mass of people who get together to celebrate Christ. There's certainly nothing wrong or unbiblical about that. To most Christians, however, I think the gifts given at Christmas are symbolic tributes to the, the Magi, and certainly there's nothing wrong with that. So we come to this service today where Christmas lands on December, uh, uh, 20, December 25th, lands on a Sunday, I should say. And what a blessing that is. I think we can all appropriate our worship around the idea of giving and getting when it comes to God giving and us receiving. As wonderful and as well-intentioned as is the idea of giving, nothing, nothing compares to God's giving. I know you know this verse well, but hear it fresh in the, in the shadow of Christmas promise. For God, God so loved the world, say it with me, that he, what's the word? He gave. God gave. What kind of gift? His only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That familiar verse captures the gift of God. It is the son, the Lord Jesus. J.I. Packer writes, the word became flesh in John 1.14. God became a man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. Needing to be fed, needing to be changed, taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. 
The more you think of it, Packer writes, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation, end quote. I think he's right. No one would ever invent a story that said God came to save the world by sending his son, God himself, to become a human, to bear the sins of those who believe. That's just counterintuitive at every, every level. That's God giving the son. But in our text in 2 Corinthians, this is different. This is the son giving himself. Let me read it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that... Though he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We have to ask a question. How, how did Jesus, in his coming, become poor? Well, we find out in the text, before he became poor, he was what? Rich. Rich in what? Um, everything. He owned the universe. That, that hints at a little bit of wealth, but it's more than that. We studied in the book of Ephesians that all the blessings that we inherit of God giving us his kindness and his wealth, all of those blessings are spiritual realities which equate to knowing him and ultimately looking forward to being with him in heaven. God himself is the wealth of all wealths. So he became poor that we would become rich. Is this literal or figurative? In other words, is this poverty regarding wealth or is it regarding something else? Is this commodities? Listen, Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is more than rich with the commodities of this universe. But there's something more going on here. Philippians 2 helps us with this. Philippians 2.7, Paul writes, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant <coughs> and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. In other words, the one who is, who was, who always will be God did not regard equality with God a thing to be shown off or displayed, but he emptied himself. We just sang it. Mild he lays his glories by. Mild he lays his glories by. He didn't stop becoming God. He set aside, think about this, he set aside the use of some of his divine attributes in the incarnation to be counted as a man. <coughs> Christ, being so very rich, became so very poor in order that we may become infinitely rich. How does that work? He gave up the prerogatives of deity, not his deity itself, the prerogatives of exercising and flexing the muscle of deity, to be counted as a man, and that text in Philippians tells us, so that he would be accused as a man of the sins you and I committed, so he could die as a man. One theologian said it like this. In literal language, 
He who possessed all exaltation also in his human nature used such low humiliation in order that we who were in utter abasement of our sin may become exalted by his grace. Wow. Jesus' self-sacrifice is an even higher standard of giving than he calls the Corinthians to give for the physical salvation, the physical saving of these Christians in Jerusalem. Paul uses this example of Jesus giving as the foundation of giving. The great theologian Cranfield says it like this. This is so good. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ denotes the utterly undeserved, royal, free, effective, unwearying, inexhaustible goodwill of God, active in and through Jesus Christ, God's effective, overflowing mercy. Wow. You know it well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He exchanged his wealth for our poverty that he could give us his wealth. One of the old church fathers, Gregory, said this, Christ was made poor that we through his poverty might be rich. He took the form of a servant that we might regain liberty. He descended that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might overcome. He was despised that he might fill us with glory. He died that we might be saved. He ascended to draw us to himself and draw to himself those lying prostrate on the ground through sin's stumbling block. He became poor that we might inherit his wealth. So remember the context here. True giving, whether it's the giving of a Christmas gift or the giving to meet a need, true giving of oneself, of one's resources, is about the gospel. We're imitating the giving of God of his son, the imitating of Christ in giving himself and his wealth. He became poor that we could become rich. It's related to our experience of God. So let's, let's wrap our mind around three quick takeaways from this verse, can we? Let's walk away with this in our hands. First of all, we need to cling to something we know. Something we know. Number one, something we know. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a statement. He's saying you understand the gospel, and based on your understanding of the gospel, you understand true gift giving and true gift receiving. Our receiving from God and the grace of God and the gospel, our giving for any, anything we can do to be a blessing to anyone. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding the theological formulations of the gospel are the foundation for all benevolence, all giving, all kindnesses, we give because he first gave. We love because he first loved. That little phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a theological formula that Paul loves to use in his epistles. Grace includes the message of the gospel, Jesus' death, his resurrection, Christ's atoning work, peace with God, remission of sin, and the Lord's abiding presence. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.
And he says, really, you know this. It's quite an assumption. So all of your benevolence is based on you knowing the good news of the gospel. Paul's point here to the Corinthians is that they ought to be generous in their giving because God is generous to them. What a simple precept. What a simple concept. But we give not out of our abundance. We give out of our understanding. We know the grace of God. Even on materialistic levels, when we give gifts, which are kind graces, we see it all over the New Testament. Gifts were were a normal part of Christians' expressions of love and the Jews' expression of love. We give, Christians do, not because we have excess that we can bless people out of. We give because God gave to us. We're reflecting Him. We want to be like Him. We appreciate Him. Something you know. Paul's grand assumption, you know. You know. Secondly, it's something we understand. This goes a little deeper, not something we just know about, the gospel, the grace of God and giving. Something, number two, something we understand. For you know that though he was rich, Jesus was rich, he became poor on account of you. Now we're back to that early Christian hymn we we alluded to earlier in Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider that equality with God, his ontology, his deity, a thing to be grasped. That doesn't mean experience. It meant to be shown off. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You know, if you or I were God and we showed up, we would probably announce to everyone that we were God and get all the accolades for that. I just am amazed and in wonderment over the 33 or so years that almost no one knew. Oh, I think his mother knew. I guarantee you his brothers and sisters knew something that was unique about him. But they didn't believe until after the resurrection. He didn't show it off. In fact, he said, the gospel is not complete until I've died for sins and rose from the dead. And then his glory was on full display. In John chapter 13, it says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When? The approaching of the cross. That was his glorification, was in his ultimate humiliation. So different than we think. We mention it often, John 17, 5, it's captured my my theological fancy so much I can hardly contain it. Between my ears, Jesus praying in the high priestly prayer says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I mean, can you take that in? Glorify me with the glory that we shared before the world began, before there was a world, before there was a universe. Paul is intending for us here to understand the contrast between the riches of Christ before Christ's birth with the poverty of his human existence during his earthly life. God, very God, exchanged all the wealth of the glory of heaven to become a poor, impoverished carpenter, mason, so he could give us his wealth of glory. Incredible. 
mild he lays his glory by, right? Born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, Charles Wesley says. Reminds me of that passage we studied in depth in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. So it's something we know, it's something we understand. Thirdly, a takeaway, it's something we experience. I don't think we talk about this enough, but the experience of Christ in the gospel, something we experience. Look at the last phrase there in 2 Corinthians 8 9, so that you might become rich through his poverty. As we say in Ephesians 1, we study this in detail. He gave us every blessing in the spiritual, uh, in the heavenlies, spiritual blessing that we experience some now and some then. Paul's not teaching a prosperity gospel here. The wealth a believer possesses is a spiritual reality that involves a literal inheritance to be experienced in eternity. We get foretastes of that, but not fully in this life. I mean, let's contextualize it. Just as there are presents under the tree in December that are not to be opened until Christmas Day, we possess presents yet to be opened in the coming of the Lord. As the old question goes, what do you really have that money can't buy and death can't take away? What have you been given that money can't buy and death can't take away? That's your ultimate prize and treasure. And it should be the good news of eternal salvation and hope and security in Christ. The record of Jesus in the Gospels is an account of the Son of God coming into poverty, in a world of poverty. He was born in a stable, Luke tells us. He had no place to lay his head, Matthew 8, 20 tells us. And when he needed things, he had to borrow them, like a boat, like a donkey, like an upper room. He had nothing. And the only thing he had after he died the Roman soldiers gambled to, to possess. Back to J.I. Packer for a moment. He says, For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent, to enrich their fellow men, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends. Packer says, in whatever way there seems to be need, they find it. So again, Christmas is so much about gifts and gift giving. I don't think it's bad to think of it like that because it's a reflection of the ultimate gift that God the Father gave in the Son and the ultimate gift that the Son gave that His poverty would make us wealthy with the realities that surround the gospel. So what do we see? Veiled in flesh, what do you see? The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You see the gift of God and the great giver, God himself, in the incarnation. 
So in this day, in this weekend, in this season, in this week of gifts and gift giving, it's a wonderful thing, a wonderful way to bless people and be blessed. Let's not forget that our standard, our example, our paradigm, paradigm is the Father giving the Son, is the Son giving Himself, and is the Spirit bringing to our attention those realities so that we can live in a way that reflects our belief in the Godhead. You're going to be asked this week, what'd you get for Christmas? Your kids will be asking and ask that all week. That's a fine thing. Can we expand that to say, can I tell you what I've been given in life? Which is the good news of hope eternal in the good news of God giving us his son. What a gift. What a God. What a Savior. So don't, don't, don't be lost in the wonder of the season such that you miss the theology in plain sight for all of us to worship. Let me pray. Father, in your goodness and your grace, we experience this time, this season, this service, this moment. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would have us to know about the theology surrounding this celebration that we we so enjoy. Make us aware of the spiritual realities and the wealth that you've given us that we can't even see, but that, that exists like presence under a tree for us one day. Give us as much confidence in them as we do looking at unwrapped presence at Christmas time. And Father, should there be anyone who does not understand or has not received the good news of the gospel, oh, this day, cause their hearts to melt under the overwhelming kindness of your gift to us in your Son and by your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.